Hi, my name is Tracy G and I'm an inner work coach, NLP trainer and podcaster extraordinaire. Passionate about equality and a world that is more diverse and inclusive, giving each and every one of us the opportunity to be the best version of ourselves. As a biracial woman, I've experienced my fair share of discrimination in the past and come out on top. We all know that discrimination and bias still exists in the world today, and it's not always easy to know what to do about it. This podcast, All One Inclusive, is about celebrating all diversity and being proud of all that you are. I chat with inspiring guests and my friends as we share stories from news sources and listeners from all over the world who have experienced some form of discrimination firsthand. The aim is for us to be able to discuss this issue more openly so it becomes better understood by all and provide tips about what you can do to make a difference. The world may have a lot of catching up to do, but if we can imagine a more equal world, we can create change step by step, ripple by ripple. Hi, happy hump day. Hi, Tracy. Happy Wednesday. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. I'm what have you been up to? I'm trying to think. What have you been up to? Just taking it easy, I guess. Not really. I've been working. I've been doing things. I haven't done anything uh, major since we last talked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've just been getting on with some work. Yeah, it's been a bit of a quiet one, hasn't it? So maybe it's been quiet before the storm when it all mm-hmm. kind of wraps up. But yeah, it's been a fairly quiet week for me too. Um, was closing down my contract work uh, and so um, uh, it's been giving me more time to catch up with my reading catch up with some Netflix watching so uh, yeah I tell you what though you inspired me how so every time we talk and you talk about reading and I love to read I read a lot of non-fiction however in my line of work mm-hmm. I guess I'm very prone to non-fiction it's just my nature but I do like fiction, but I don't read as much as I used to. And it's, it's time, isn't it? But anyway, one thing, you know, you, that I noticed with you, you like to seek out the, you know, the authors of Indian backgrounds that have written, you know, compelling fiction. So I just thought, I had this assumption that there was no Nigerian authors or maybe like one or two, like hardly any. So I Googled. Okay, great. What did you find? Loads, like like New York Times best-selling Booker Prize winners or nominees. Okay. So I've downloaded a few books that I'm going to read. I was like, I can't believe now it's sad. Yeah, well, well, what I recommend is having a look at what their content is all about because the reason why I, well, I do do that. I don't yeah, buy I mean, a book. Yeah. Based I mean, on the reason author. why I love Indian authors is not just because I want to support obviously Indian authors being creative and encouraging um, on the writing side, but it's you tend to find that authors write about what they know about. And Indian authors, they tend to obviously write about set stories in India. And because it was, it's India, India is one of my favorite places, it's probably my favorite place in the world. And so um, when you're reading about it, it's a method of transportation. And so it feels like you're being transported back to that time. So, yeah, that's what I definitely encourage. Is, um... Well, that's, that's exactly why I'm doing it. I read about what's the story, what's the content. Because for years, I've been asking my dad, who's obviously Nigerian and grew up there, to tell me about his life growing up there. And I asked him to write me letters 
Oh, okay. That's great. It is great. It's wonderful, right? And then that would help me connect with him more, get Mm. to know what it was like for him, because obviously I didn't grow up in that culture. It would be great if he did it. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be asking him for, honestly, I'd say a good 10 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, if he's listening to the podcast now, let's do a shout out to Tracy's dad. Yeah. And to be fair, let's start writing. Yeah, pen to paper. And to be fair, he's written three letters in 10 years. Okay. All right. Okay. So we have a challenge on our hands there. Yeah, we have a challenge. So this is another way because some of these books that I've downloaded, they talk about life in Nigeria back in the 80s, back in the 90s or even modern day. So I think this is another way for me to learn more about the culture that uh, I did grow up in, but, you know, it's part of my roots. Yeah, and you've been to Nigeria, haven't you, Tracy? I have once. Yeah, Um, how was that experience? It wasn't my best experience for lots of reasons. I was quite young. I was only 14 years old. So I was a teenager. Necessarily, I think that's the best time for some teenagers to be far away from home for six weeks Mm. and far away from their primary carer because my mum and dad weren't together then. So I lived with my mum. So it's a big deal Mm. for me. And also it was a culture shock. Mm, I bet, yeah. It's a a, a massive culture shock. You know, in 14, I'm walking around in Western values, Western world, clothes, material, you know, a developed country and Nigeria is developed it's not particularly third world but parts of it are mm. like like same in lots of countries in Africa like South Africa for example you've got people living in wells with you know security and you've got people living in shanty towns, shanty towns yeah yeah so it's kind of like that in Nigeria yeah. and Nigeria is one of the most populous country in Africa mm. it's the most populous a lot of people there's the kind of Muslim versus Christian kind of conflicts see so there's a bit of tension there too political stuff from when I actually when I went my uncle was in prison as a political prisoner oh wow okay yeah when I went to visit and my dad and I went because my dad was getting married to a Nigerian woman right and Um, so do you have you had contact with your uncle have you oh this was when I was four this is a very long time ago he's died since then I see I see Um, this is a very very long time ago so the experience was very I don't know how to describe it. It was great, but it, at the same time, it wasn't because it was just, it was very overwhelming for me. I was about to say that it sounds as though it was for a 14 year old person growing up in Blackburn and then going over to somewhere like Nigeria. It's, uh, yeah, it can be a massive shock. And, the, thing, and the other thing so, as well is my mum wasn't there because that's it. You were completely on your own. Yeah. I felt yeah. like that, even though, and my dad wasn't around a lot because he was around organizing his wedding so he'd leave me with family who you'd never met before yeah yeah wow. and, and that was okay in the sense that you know they were lovely and very welcoming but it's not it doesn't matter yeah they were still strangers yeah. to me yes. and so it was and and no idea what I could have been experiencing yeah or that you know that there's just such a what's the word a difference in culture a clash a culture clash yeah, yeah. so yeah. it was very challenging but I'm glad I went yeah um, but very brave of you too well I didn't really have a choice I'll well, tell you what it made 14 years old and then kind of like um, yeah being yeah. dropped in amongst the relatives who you've never met in your life 
And so um, was there any language barriers? With grandparents, yes, because they didn't speak English. But that was another thing. What's the mother? You know, like here, Aboriginal have like all different languages. There's languages as like hundreds and hundreds of languages. It's the same there with their tribes. So they have their language. I see. Uh, and then their country has a language. Right. Um, okay. So they would speak their own language and the, the language of the country, which was house. Right. Um, okay. I see. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, we could talk about it forever because there's so much that happened there. Maybe we'll have a chat off- offline. Yes, that. that's right. Yeah, that's very interesting, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Talk about communities. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, but kind of brings me to my first story that we're sharing today. Um, so the story uh, that I've chosen is from ABC News, mm-hmm. and it's talking about um, queer Muslims here in Sydney and about um, how they're breaking the fast Ramadan. It's actually this weekend, I believe. So um, hence the article, Uh, there's a set number of days fasting. And then um, that leads up to the whole celebration of Eid in the Muslim religious calendar. So I don't know too much about um, the Muslim religion or its rituals. But um, apparently there's a breaking of the fast, which is called iftar. And iftar is a ritual whereby it's breaking of a fast and it's supposed to signify bringing in blessings. So um, the article um, from ABC News, um, the headline reads, Melbourne's queer Muslims break fast together during Ramadan. I thought this was an interesting article because um, I didn't know there was a community of um, queer Muslims here in Sydney, mainly because I think for me, it's um, what I do know about the Muslim religion. It can be, in terms of religious values, it can it can be a bit of a clash when it comes to um, homosexuality. And I don't think I know that many, I don't think I know any Muslim queer. And I know that in the Indian community, um, when there is homosexuality, there has been stigma, still stigma around it. And I do know from experience that a lot of Asians in the Indian community, they do struggle to come out, to make the decision to come out. And so it's definitely changing now. Um, But uh, I suppose I'm comparing that to the Muslim community who are predominantly stricter. And um, maybe that's another reason why I haven't heard of Muslim queers. And to read about a community of um, queer Muslims here in Sydney, um, it's quite new to me. I think I saw that article. Was it in in Melbourne or Sydney? In Melbourne. In Melbourne, yeah. 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 I mean, the same. I haven't, I don't know any. Muslims are homosexual I have never met any and I never thought about it but I just imagine because I just feel you're born I personally believe it's my personal belief that you're born homosexual you're born with your sexuality and as you grow older you may know straight away or it may evolve as you get to know yourself whatever okay um, whatever your sexuality might be it might be homosexual it might not it might be bisexual or whatever that's my belief so it doesn't surprise me you know I don't think because you're born into a religion that you it means you can't possibly be homosexual but it's the stigma and the community how much they support you and I would think you've like you said it'd be very strict because my perception is of those um, values that they're very strictly enforced but it's the same like in the Catholic religion. You know, it would be the same kind of stigma. What I've seen is people deciding that they don't have to choose, as in they shouldn't have to choose between their faith and their sexuality. 
And, and I think that's great because I feel there's always a middle path because they seem to be trying to force them into this. You either choose your faith or you're being discarded, basically, which is just really soul destroying for somebody with a real strong faith. Yes, yes. It's like uh, homosexuality, for example, in the Muslim religion and many of the religions, it may not be seen as compatible with um, the religious beliefs. And hence, that's how individuals can become ostracized from the community and then not be able to uh, contribute to that particular religious um, place of worship or even participate in their religion. And so they may not, you know, individuals who are homosexual and of, let's say, Muslim religion or Muslim faith may not feel validated and they may, may, may become really quite ostracized. And that's what this article is focusing on. It's a time during Ramadan where the Muslim community come together to break the fast. If an individual has been ostracized because of their sexuality, then where does that leave them? Yeah, and I just think as well, the mental health stress, because imagine a lot of people, their faith is their identity, is part of their identity. Mm. So to be told that, you know, they can be told some very extreme things. There's something wrong with you. Yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. To be told that message, I just can't even imagine that. A lot of religious activities, they do, they are based around group activities, you know, communal faith. So that's the idea of of religion that is bringing a community together. So there's lots of rituals that that are performed as part of your religious faith. But if you're ostracized and you're on your own, how can you participate in that? How can you feel a part of that community? How can you feel a part of your faith? So, um, yeah, I totally understand that. And so in this article, um, I'll read through the article. It, it says, in a warm, well-lit room tucked away in Melbourne CBD, the city's queer Muslim community has come together to break fast during Ramadan. This iftar, meaning the meal eaten after sunset during Ramadan, has been running for three years to provide a space for Muslims in the LGBTQ community. As one of five pillars of Islam, during Ramadan, Muslims are required to fast each day from dawn until dusk for around 29 or 30 days, with the iftar serving to break the day's fast. It's a meal commonly shared with family and friends, but for many LGBTQ Muslims living in Australia, Ramadan can be a much lonelier time of year. Queer iftar organiser Abdullah Yahya fled his home country and became a refugee in Australia to escape criminalization for being queer. Mr. Yah Yah said the community aspect of Ramadan can be heartbreaking and isolating for LGBTQ Muslims like himself, who feel ostracized due to their sexuality. And he quotes, "Um, if I've gone through something that is isolating and heartbreaking during Ramadan, I don't want anyone else to go through the same thing. The article goes on to say he started running the iftar for his community in 2019 and the following year he joined with Bridge Meals, a community-led initiative that holds dinners and for marginalised groups such as refugees, migrants and LGBTQ people. He said, culturally, Ramadan is something that we grew up with and we just want to have the same opportunity to have that same practice again, Mr. Yaya said. And the article goes on to say that Iftar started with just six to eight people per week in 2020. This year, Bridge Meals ran three small Iftars to ensure privacy and confidentiality for those who attended, with a group already seeking more funding to keep up with the demand. 
From a final iftar, the organization brought everyone together and allowed allies to attend too, filling the room with around 80 people. Wow, that's great. I love stories like this because I love that someone's had this pain and someone's had this horrible experience and something good's come out of it. Mm. Like they've been able to help other people. And I know, you know, when people say things happen for a reason and it's not comforting when the bad shit's happening to you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right. It's not comforting at all. But I kind of believe that. I guess I have to. Otherwise, life would be too depressing. I believe that good can come out of terrible things. And this is just a beautiful story. Hmm. So is it a community that you can join in Sydney as well, or is it only in Melbourne? It's in, at the moment, this um, uh, this community is running in Melbourne CBD only. I mean, considering um, the impact that it's had, uh, maybe it will, we can see it bleed into uh, other states such as New South Wales and maybe even globally. Um, I did see a, there is a, another forum in Australia uh, and uh, it's for Sydney queer Muslims mm-hmm. and it's an organization LGBTQ LGBTIQ plus Health Australia. And they actually have a forum specifically set for Sydney queer Muslims. And um, the organization, it basically um, describes themselves as Sydney queer Muslims is a non-profit organization dedicated to providing social support, education and resources to individuals and families in New South Wales. And for any listeners out there who are looking for support, who are looking for more uh, information around this, all these resources, either for themselves or their families, the link is um, sydneyqueermuslims.org. Thanks for that. That was awesome. So, you know, for me and you in education as well, um, how it brings an awareness to this community, um, especially at this time of year. So, yeah, I think, you know, if you identify with a particular religion culture, you should be able to participate in it, regardless of your sexuality. Come on. Mm, that's right. day and age. Yeah. For sure. And it's um, to open up conversations about this. So, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to move on then to our next story. Okay. I picked this story because I found it amazing. So let's see if you find it amusing. This is from the Independent, a UK publication. And the title of the story is Cambridge College Under Fire for Serving Culturally Insensitive Food. Uh, Culturally insensitive food. What is culturally insensitive food? I don't know. So then I thought, this is what I was thinking. So what could that possibly mean? (laughs) Before I went on to read, what could it possibly mean? Does it mean like mixing up your curries with your, uh, I don't know, with your fish and chips or something? That doesn't make sense. Maybe it means eating your curry with a slice of toast, buttered toast. That's not culturally insensitive. That's a again, that's culture clash, right? Yeah, it's culture clash. Mm-hmm. Students at Pembroke College, Cambridge, criticised catering staff for serving exotic dishes with unauthentic combinations of ingredients. <laughs> It's funny, it's funny. So a University of Cambridge college is to review its dinner menu after being accused of serving cultural misrepresentations of exotic meals, wrongly attributed to different countries and regions. Students at Pembroke College lodged complaints about dishes including Jamaican stew, Chinese chicken, Oriental beef stew, Indian fish pie, and African stew with sweet potato, claiming the combinations did not exist in their native countries. Commenting on social media, one student posted, Dear Pembroke Catering Staff, 
Stop mixing mango and beef and calling it Jamaican stew. It's rude. It's rude. It's rude. How dare you? The student continued, I'm used to, as a minority student, being constantly invalidated when flagging up specific issues. But if people feel their cultures are misrepresented, they have a right to address this. Microaggressions are a reality of everyday existence for many people of colour. Another student took issue with the cauliflower dates. Oh, I love that. Took a, a, a cauliflower issue. Took issue. Oh, it's getting serious, Tracy. I know. Took so issue with cauliflower date and tofu tagine with Tunisian rice and coriander yogurt. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, that's taking issue. Yeah, the warning there is definitely don't take that student to a Michelin's um, rated star um, restaurant. That's what I would say. <laughs> and then they're saying, sorry, but what is this? We don't eat these things in Tunisia. The criticism sparked debate on the student Facebook page. But this is somebody said, another student said this. You've got to be pretty privileged to have the time to sit and moan about the naming of the food you eat at one of the best universities in the world. Another said, while the Indian food in trough isn't straight from my daddy's karahi in Mumbai, high rise, <laughs> I'm thankful for the Pembroke staff for at least trying. Mm. Yeah, I kind of see there's an effort. I mean, come on. Butter chicken, um, Indian food in Australia is not Indian food. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's like if you go to the heart of India and if you ask them to make you butter chicken, they won't know what the hell you're talking about. I've been looking yeah, at you like, you've got two heads. That's right. Or right. even like, I mean, I'm guessing even the British Indian food, like Vindaloo and I think those are not actually... They're not. They were obviously they were constructed by the British when they came back from India uh, and obviously making it palatable for... Or British plates, really. Oh. So, um, but this answers though, what's happened is it's Cambridge University, and they've basically got your traditional, they've grabbed the traditional recipes and they've given, they've pimped them up basically, and they've given them the Marco Pier White kind of uh, makeover. I don't and- know if I'd call it that. I'd just call it throwing some stuff together and deciding, though, well, that's kind of Jamaican sounding. <laughs> Well, the cauliflower date and tofu tagine with Tunisian rice, yeah. coriander yogurt. Like that sounds quite nice. But then again, if you break it down, the coriander yogurt, that's basically what Indians call right. So, you know, when you go to a, a typical Indian, uh, any Indian restaurant and you have uh, one of the condiments, there's coriander yogurt on there. They just don't label it that way. I just so, think it's interesting. Um, and I'm like, like, right, can I look at this perspective? It just depends, like... It's probably been, this screams wokeism, right? We talk about woke, wokeism. But, you know, they're making an effort to be more multicultural. Maybe what they could have done, and we say this all the time, what happens is people just make a decision. They don't, maybe they did consult, but it sounds to me like they didn't consult with the people eating the food, right? So maybe they should have gone, you know, we want to change up the menu and we look at suggestions. Um, you know, food from all parts of the world, you know, nominate some recipes or something so that they had a say. Yeah. Can you imagine, though, being on that board, the panel and the discussion that took place to decide um, the contents of this menu? That I mean, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. Mm. You know, I mean, who came up with the Indian fish pie was there on no, this? I will. Because that actually sounds quite delicious. 
But so, you know, some of it does sound good. Yeah, um, I'd love to have been in that on that panel mm. um, to hear of the creativity, the culinary creativity of these minds. Exactly. I think maybe they should just put a disclaimer on the menu saying these are not authentically originating from the countries. I think that would be fine. Yes, that's a brilliant solution. But just dis- disclaimer. Disclaimer. That's right. Disclaimer this menu. Mm. Yeah, yeah, but I have to say like that, that cauliflower date and tofu tagine. Sound nice. It sounds really nice. Yeah, mm. it's actually making mm. me hungry. But yeah, again, a discussion. So college bursar Andrew Kate said Pembroke had received no formal complaint from students, and the comments made on the student webpage contained a certain style. And- it would have been great to maybe um, understand. Like, it would have been great to have um, a tasting session. And then have the reviews because you never know it would probably may have changed people's minds yeah and that's me consult the people you catering for it and uh, what's funny what i imagine this is they've ruffled a few feathers people you know it depends on the frame of mind you're in at the time having a whinge but nobody's felt so you know nobody has felt so offended by it to take a form make a formal complaint by the sounds of it which is good. Um, and then it says, as a college which prides itself on the high standards of our cuisine and wants all our students of diverse backgrounds to feel valued, part of the community, we encourage our catering staff to take the views of any of our students seriously. I think it's hilarious because it's like, I remember in my university days, it was a case of surviving on like pasta and cheese and chips on toast and fish fingers, that type of thing, baked potatoes. Yeah, these were the um, typical standards. Yeah, pizza right, yeah. Pizza and toasties, ham and cheese, toasty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember one of my flatmates used to just go through pot noodles all the time. Like, I'm, I'm only talking about the catering. Yeah, that's it. And now, now we're talking about tagines you know, as, as student food. Um, so, yeah, it's obviously had an improvement. Well, it is Cambridge, love. Um, so, yeah, that's quite funny. I just thought it was funny, yeah. story about the multiculturalism of food cases in universities. Does it reflect the diversity of the student population? Probably not, but, you know, neither of these restaurants. Yes, mostly. that's right. That's true, yeah, yeah, yeah. The actual menu reflecting the diversity of the students. So, um, yeah, that's also improved. I know, like, back in my day, like, I studied, I was at university 20 years ago. Um, and um, probably more now and yeah there was on the menu there would have been chips fish baked beans um cottage pie I remember there was definitely no curries on the menu any kind of form of Indian food I remember we had to I remember I had to make my own I would definitely and, have the chicken curry yeah I couldn't be bothered because you know it takes a little bit of time and uh that's a valuable student drinking time there so um, yeah I remember there's a chicken curry you could get a chicken, but it wasn't great. It's like, a, you know, you could get a chicken curry, but it couldn't tell you what country it was from. But, they, you know, it was all right. I, I just think, you know, they weren't claiming to be from, you know, the north of India or anything like that. So, yeah, I think it's because it might be a bit out of context. Yeah, but that's funny. Should have put disclaimer on it or consulted with this. Definitely, yes. Yeah. They bring in that disclaimer for Cambridge University. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, okay. What would you do? What would you do? What would you do? What would you do? Okay. Everyday interactions. So you're at work and the co-worker asks you 
if Jane, who is a woman of color, mm -hmm. was hired to work with the minority clients, what would you say to your that's, that's an interesting one. It's an interesting one because I've just finished up um, a short contract in my role where I was looking after um, clients on a global basis uh, with a majority of the clients being based in the Asia Pacific area, i.e. countries such as Singapore, Malaysia, China, Taiwan, India, um, Bangladesh. And I know that I, I am sure that I wasn't hired for my ethnic background. However, it did play as an advantage because there were some conversations that I was able to have quite easily with my clients who looked like me um, and who knew shared experiences of my community with them to help develop relationships. But that wasn't intentional. And so this comes back to being hired on your skill set, on an individual skill set. And if perchance that the ethnicity of that individual acts as an advantageous point for the point of work or for the purpose of the work, then so be it. But the main thing is that the person is hired on their skill set and anything else would be a bonus. So I, I would probably say to the client, I'd probably say if that comment came up, I'd probably say, I'd go, go back to highlighting the Jane skills. And then I'd also say, if it adds A, B, and C in terms of our clients who may be of um, ethnic minorities, then, hey, that's a bonus for us. So, but I'd come back to, I'd just highlight the fact that the idea that she was hired wasn't based on her skills. Anything else is a bonus. Right. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I thought about this. I think it's possible. I mean, in your case, you know, it wasn't. But I mean, not all your clients were, you know, Chinese clients, for example, you don't have a shared culture and background. So, but yet they could still maybe relate to you more. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe you could still have conversations that other people that weren't of color couldn't, I don't know. Yeah. So the, yeah, there could be advantages. I think the good thing about minorities working with other minorities is they're probably are more sensitive to microaggressions and unconscious bias. Probably, not always. Maybe they've experienced some of these things themselves. Might be different. Um, so I think maybe that could be a possible advantage. But in, even in, in this situation, I would have said what you just said. I said, well, this person has got this experience, these qualifications. So I'd say that we're hired because of that. And if they can relate, build really good connections with our minority clients because they're black, then that's a bonus. And I would say, so watch and learn. Because just because they're black, what are they saying? What are they doing differently? You could learn from that. Just because they're mm. black, it doesn't mean that you couldn't also connect more just by getting a deeper understanding of how they're building that connection. Yeah, so that's a great point about you've made there, Tracy, definitely about learning. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, especially in the workplace, because, you know, and again, that's all about uh, that contributes to personal growth, too. It's about, you know, and that's the whole idea of diversity and having inclusion is that we can learn from people who are not like us. Yeah, 
Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's oh. a great point. So this question could be, I say this could be, because the fact is, if a co-worker is asking if this woman was hired to work with the minority client, there's an inference there in the question. Mm-hmm. Yes. You wouldn't be asking it if you didn't think it. Yeah. So, so it's an inference that's that is the that unconscious bias. Yeah. yeah. There's an inference there that's the purpose this person's being hired. So this question is othering, othering, my accent, othering, to say mm. like that. This question is othering, that is, implies that people of colour are different or outsiders. It may also suggest that your colleague was hired simply because she's a woman of colour, not because she's qualified to do the job. Yeah, that's true. You could ask your career worker what makes them think that or counter their bias by mentioning some of the specific skills and experience the woman brings to the team. You could also point out the problem with the underlying assumption, for example, by asking, do the men on the team only work with clients who are men? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I didn't think about it from that perspective. Yeah, just yeah, because... That's a rebuttal though, isn't it? And I suppose you'd have to watch your tone. Well, your tone. in fact, it's a good question. It's a great rebuttal a comment, yeah. It's a great question. Do the men... Yeah, you don't have to add it. You're questioning their thinking. And I think that's absolutely perfectly acceptable. You do it in a respectful way. Because, yeah, just because they're Black doesn't mean to say, does not mean necessarily that they will work any better with minorities, other minorities than they would with anybody else. Mm. It's just mm. a silly assumption. But it might. They might have, you know, but that's probably not why they were hired. Because that would be, a, if you hired someone just on that, that would be really massive risk because there's no correlation necessarily. Of course, yes. Yeah. And that's why it goes back to that foundation of being hired on your skills for that specific job. And if anything else comes from that, then it's a bonus. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, do the men on the team only work with clients who are men? The women on the team only work with you know, clients that are women? It would be a ridiculous idea. Later, you can ask your manager to publicly reinforce her qualifications. It's subtle. It's a good strategy, if that's what people were saying. That was the office gossip, for example. Then it says the question may be rooted in a biased belief that women of colour, that the woman of colour is somehow less talented or capable than the other account managers. It also suggests that your coworker views clients of colour as less important to the business. Taken together, these beliefs imply that a woman of colour cannot be on on the A team. And its situation was adapted from the memo what women of colour need to know to secure a seat at the table by Minda Hartz. It's about some yeah. further reading for anyone who may be interested. Yes, further reading there for you, if you're interested. So that was an interesting situation. I should think it's yeah. ever happened to me. The only time I would have made a comment like that, because there's a context, right, is whether we have <coughs> a, a language situation where we've got client, so for example, when I used to work in my old job, I'd be resourcing clinical trials running across different countries, right? Yeah. So I might choose our Japanese speaking. I may choose our Japanese speaking team member to work on this particular trial because Japan is in the trial. Uh-huh. And so that would be useful. Yes, that makes sense. Yes. So that was the only pers- reason I would select someone for the reason of their background. I see, I see. But, you know, sometimes I didn't have that option anyway. And yeah. then I would go to someone who has worked with Japan before, so how's experience? You know, you just go through the best option and express option. 
So that would be the only context where I would think, oh, I'm going to choose you because I wouldn't automatically, if I had just minority clients, I wouldn't go for the minority in my team to work with them. Actually, I would never do that. It wouldn't mm-hmm. even occur to me. Yes. But obviously. Yeah. Yeah. In my situation, it did occur to my leadership team, my colleagues, or the hiring staff about um, the impact that myself, also coming from an ethnic background, would have with the clients um, who were based in these ethnic countries. So it didn't occur to them? It didn't occur to them because I actually had to bring it up because uh, there were items that came up which weren't part of my role, which ended up being advantageous to the company's or the business um, purpose. Mm. And so um, I actually ended up working on some additional um, projects, which were born out of um, the connection that I made, which was based on the fact that I came from an ethnic background, my clients came from an ethnic background, and then we were able to work on an additional project together, which wasn't part of my uh, uh, job description, but it contributed to the business. Mm. So well, that let's just clarify, though. It was advantageous in that sense. So, but As I understand it, your ethnic background was relevant to the work. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes, because I work in the area of mental wellness and the stigma around mental wellness in a lot of ethnic communities. It's just not, there's no one to open up conversations around that. And a lot of people don't know how to open up conversations around that. And so with myself, I saw that as part of the work that mm. I was doing. I, it wasn't my responsibility to do, to open up conversations around that, but it, it organically happened because of the relationships that I was developing. And also it was born out of conversations which I was sharing on my experiences. Mm. And that then led to my clients who are also from ethnic backgrounds, also sharing their experiences and that led to insights which I then was able to feel that's good but that's the point it was relevant to your work that's it yeah so in this case you know I know marketing account manager I'm only working with clients that are minorities on a marketing campaign for I don't know kind of coke Mm. it's not relevant yeah that's irrelevant yes that's irrelevant so that's the difference I think you need to Mm. just highlight that yeah but anyway I think that we've got time for today Great. That was a good one. Thank you, Trace. And we're going to meet for chai. We are, yes. I'm coming over to your neck of the woods and I'm going to be trying out um, this uh, newly hyped chai tea shop. And uh, yeah, I can't wait, actually. I'm quite excited. Um, Yeah, I I love a bit of chai tea. See. Let's do it then. All right. See you in a bit. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you have as much fun with us today as we did. If what you heard resonated with you, don't forget to show the love and like our YouTube channel, All One with Tracy G. Give us a five-star rating on whichever podcast platform is lucky enough to have this episode because they rock too. Feel free to email us stories or questions at alloneinclusive at gmail.com and sign up for my newsletter if updating yourself about everything which goes down sounds like something right up your alley at tracygandu.com. Until the next time, see ya!